Thank you for joining us on Warrior Women Speak. I'm Judge Rosemary Aquilina, author of Just Watch Me, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sherry Botwin, LCSW, social worker and trauma specialist and author of Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. We have created this podcast for your enjoyment and so that we all can talk about our issues and learn together about how to deal with trauma and those things that spring up in our everyday life. Please join us for every episode and let us know what you want to talk about. Now for the show. Suicides among young people continue to be a very serious problem, and we're losing teens every single day. And it's the second leading cause of death for children, adolescents, and young adults age 15 to 24 year olds. We've got to do something about it because many of these teens who actually commit suicide have made attempts many, many, many times over, and there are warning signs, not always but there are warning signs that we need to talk about and recognize and get the person who is in trauma, having difficulty dealing with whatever it is to a hospital, to a therapist, possibly residential treatment. How do we know what's the right kind of treatment for someone who's attempting suicide, Sherry? Once somebody takes action, when they're feeling like they want to give up and they're doing things to end their life, at that point, the only option really is to take them to a crisis center and to get them in some type of residential, possibly a partial program if they have an outpatient team. The thing that I'm hoping that we can help people understand is that people don't just become suicidal in a day. Usually what happens by the time somebody's at the point where they're acting on these feelings, they've been silent or quiet or hiding their symptoms. And at that point, it's sort of like the last straw for them. So I think you have to take it seriously. And I think you really do have to jump in and offer the highest level of support that there is out there. Because again, once somebody acts on these feelings, you can't we can't assume that they're not going to act on them again, unless they're in a setting where they're being monitored and where there's intervention and also where family members, partners, loved ones can learn more about what they need to look out for. So I had an uncle who's my favorite uncle who's only nine years older than me. So kind of grew up as more of an older brother than an uncle. And over the course of time, he became very, very depressed and he would only talk to my brother, Joe and I. And so it was a daily event for years and he threatened suicide all the time. And we both know eventually he would make good on it, but the triggering event for him was really some bullying that happened at work. And this is before bullying really was talked about. And of course he's a man and it was difficult for him to reach out and he had gone to therapy and all of that. But ultimately as a result of how he had been treated, he became extremely depressed. And what I learned through the course of dealing with him, and he ultimately did commit suicide. Um, I just have to believe and know that he's with my grandparents and with God, and he's finally at peace because he was very, very depressed. And I came to learn that really depression, we have to have it addressed because many suicidal 
people are extraordinarily depressed. And oftentimes there's a family history of suicide attempts. There's exposure to violence, sexual assault, uh, impulsivity. They have disruptive behaviors. There's access to firearms. It depends on the age, of course, but even young children, what I see in court, they have access to firearms. Parents are not careful about where's the ammunition, where's the firearm. Uh, he felt helplessness. And I see that all the time. And many times, especially when you're dealing with teenagers, I've worried about this with my own kids and with other children, there's some kind of loss or rejection in a friendship or a peer group and you worry. So uh, I, I think some of those things need to be recognized, but depression, how do we like cut that off at the past? Like, how does it get so bad? I think there's so many factors. There's the social factors, there's environmental, there's educational, there's predisposition. There are some people who are just more predisposed to getting depressed. So I feel like there's so many different factors that we have to consider. I meet a lot of, of young men and women, high school, college age, where their depression comes from a variety of issues. It's usually not just one thing. It could be like, I'm thinking of one of the clients that I'm working with right now. She's got a combination of family issues, peer issues, body image issues, educational. She's got some learning issues. So I think that there's so many factors. Anybody can develop depression. It's not like only certain people, even people who don't have it in their family. Not everybody that I meet has mental health issues in their family. And that's the other thing I think that we need to understand. When you were just talking, I was just doing, I was reading again some more about this young woman at Stanford. Her name is Katie Meyer. I don't know if you- Yes, horrible story. situation. And I, I mean, I haven't obviously talked to the family, but sometimes I think the problem with depression is it's, it is sort of like a silent killer. If you aren't telling somebody that you're struggling with feeling hopeless and helpless, maybe this would have been your uncle also, people don't always know. I think when people hear the word depression, they think crying all the time, doesn't want to get out of their bed, isn't sleeping, isn't eating. That's not always the case. I meet many boys and girls who go out with their friends, go to bed at night, get straight A's, and they're still really depressed. So that's one of the messages I'm hoping that we can convey today that you can't assume somebody's not depressed because they're smiling or because they get good grades or because they're social. This young woman at Stanford, again, I don't know her history, but it sounds to me like she was a very loved, um, wonderful young woman. And I think the shock that goes through people's hearts and minds when they hear about these stories, I think that's part of why we hear about them. There's been more focus recently on college athletes. We're talking today about suicide and suicide among young people, but there has been more focus lately on the pressures, the stress. I think this is the third suicide I heard about of an athlete at a very well-known college. And that makes me think, okay, there's stuff here that we're definitely missing. There ha because it, yeah. yeah. 
the athletes, I was going to say, and it's not, it goes with the sexual assault and all the things that they don't have the power. They lose their power to have a voice, to tell someone to, uh, say, Hey, someone's doing this or that to me, or telling me that I'm nothing. Cause I missed the shot or I missed whatever step it was. And the coaches are beating them down. And of course I recently received a note from a woman who's in college and she's very bright and talented and she has an $80,000 scholarship and she is living in fear and she's depressed and she was assaulted and she's not being treated very nice by her coach. And I said, there are things that, and a few professors, by the way, and she tells me all this. And I said, well, you can go to the title nine office. You can go to authorities. You can do all these things. And she says, I don't, I cannot, I do not have a voice because I have an $80,000 scholarship. There's no one in my family who can help me. And if I speak out, I will lose it. And there's nothing that I can say to her to tell her that, no, you won't. In fact, they can't do that lawfully. You can't be punished for using your voice and reporting a crime. And I think the other interesting thing is the phenomena of coaches who think they have to be mean to win. It's exactly the opposite. When you nurture someone, you get a better result with the higher winning streak. Absolutely. I'm thinking about this woman that reached out to you when you're talking about the crime that's being, that it's a crime to tell her if she speaks, she could, she could lose her scholarship. I, uh, my question for you, and I know you can't answer this as a judge, but I sometimes think to myself, how come it's not a crime for family members or friends or coaches to alienate or threaten us when something bad happened to us and we want to be heard? How come people, why do people get away with that? How do we change that? Yeah, but we change it by reporting it. And we change it by having a request for a person protection order or no contact order or a crime because you cannot threaten someone. That well, what, is unlawful. There, it could be an assaultive behavior. There's different things that can fall under, but we need to make police reports. We need it documented because sometimes it won't be an actual offense, but if it continues to happen, it could be stalking behavior. There's lots of things that it, it may fall under, but it has to be reported and documented. A lot of people, they live in such fear that they will not document. They will not report. They don't want to be a problem to their parents. They don't want to be a problem to the team. They live in fear about losing this, about their reputation. There's so many things that go on. And so without talking about it, it will continue to go on. But conversations like this saying, it's okay. If you're depressed, talk about it. If someone's bullying, you talk about it. If someone, a coach, a teacher is doing something to make you feel bad, go to the Title IX office, go to the dean, do what you can do because they're doing it to others as well. Yeah. And there is some strength. Actually, there's a lot of strength, not only in using your voice, but partnering with other people that it's happening to. But I think also it bears a conversation that we really need to listen to people. If someone says, I wish I was dead, or I won't be a problem for you much longer. Or like my uncle would say, I won't be here after your grandmother passes. And we knew, my brother and I knew it, that he had made several uh, suicide attempts and that he was planning that when his cat died and when my grandmother died, he just wasn't gonna be here anymore. And if someone really wants to commit suicide, my feeling is, you know, they're gonna, they're going to succeed at some point, which is very sad to me. But before that happens, we need to intervene, be patient, 
get them the right kind of help. And we need to listen and really hear what they're saying and look at their eating habits. Is their weight going up and down? Are they sad at times? And then all of a sudden, when you ask them about it, they're like overly happy to make up for it because, geez, somebody might recognize what I'm really feeling or what I want to do. Um, is there a certain withdrawal from friends or family members, even pets? Do they have like chronic fatigue, headaches, stomach aches, those kinds of things? And schoolwork or quality of work or giving up of hobbies. There's so many little tiny signs that indicate there is a much larger problem. So when this woman's reaching out to you, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about, I think it's amazing. Good for her for reaching out to you, but it's making me think to myself of people that I talk to uh, who come from families where their parents don't want to accept or or understand that their kid might be in a lot of pain. So that's one of the things that I'm thinking. I'm thinking to myself when she's talking about she can't speak because she doesn't want to lose her scholarship. We're talking about how legally you can't lose your scholarship for speaking. I think what happens for people sometimes when they become suicidal is it's not just the threat of losing the scholarship, it's the threat of losing the relationships that they have with those around them. So that's one of the questions that I have. And it's making me think of another young woman who's, she's just in her first year at school and she's never been treated for depression before. She's never been in therapy until now. And she has what I would call I don't know if I would call it a supportive family system, but she has, she has a family. But when we were in the session the other day and she was talking about some of her symptoms and issues she was having with her friends, when she started telling me how she felt alone and by herself, that's when I got really nervous. Uh, the other things that you're saying are obviously very important. You know, looking at somebody's eating habits and sleeping habits. But when she said to me, and I can't give you the exact words, but basically what she was saying was, I feel like I'm all by myself here and nobody, nobody wants me around anymore. It's that feeling of hopelessness and worthlessness, right? Yeah. And it's scary because I don't think that she's saying this to other people. I think I'm glad she's telling me. And one of the things that I do when somebody tells me that they feel hopeless or alone is I say, let's think about all the people in your life. For instance, this young woman, she's got lots of friends at home and she'll be home in a week. College ends in a week. I said to her, have you reached out to any of them? Because it sounds to me like the people that you are at school with are not necessarily going to be your lifelong friends, or they may not even be your friends when you go back to school next year to be able to have somebody that you can think of, wait, that person cares about me with your uncle. That would be one of the questions I'd want to ask him because obviously people loved him, but sometimes our perception of what people think of us is the truth at the time. And that's what, that's what leads you down that path of hopelessness and isolation and alienation. And I think that that's one of the reasons why this woman reached out to you. She's, if she's reaching out to you, she probably doesn't have a system set in place in her, in her like quote unquote real life. And she's looking for somebody to tell her there is something you can do. There is, there are ways you can help yourself, but it's, it actually makes me feel really sad. Not that she's reaching out to you, but yeah. that she, that that's, 
what she needs to do to feel less alone. I think good for her. I hope she's listening to this show, but it's also really sad. It is, but it's interesting to me because my uncle would talk to my brother and I, he didn't really talk to anybody else. And I had to learn that ultimately he did commit suicide and it wasn't my fault and it wasn't my brother's fault. Uh, you can't fix someone. We had helped him as much as we could and he just didn't want help. He was just sort of done. I mean, it, it's very sad, but I also think that a lot of people and you, your client, obviously, you know her better and you see much more of this than I do on one-on-one, -on -one, but I see it on the bench. And that is that, first of all, uh, mental health, we all need to have good mental health. And it's just not a sexy topic for legislators to talk about or to fund. It's not a sexy topic for families to talk about at the dinner table. Oh yeah, you had a crazy uncle, woo, or whoever. And, you know, because people don't want to admit that there could be some kind of mental illness in their family that they could pass down or that they're so, so-called responsible for it. Well, we're not responsible for it. You know, if you have a mental health issue, it's no different than cancer. Take your medication, go to the doctor, get some help, get some treatment. And I think what we see, especially once you hit the teenage years is some mental illness that crops up because your body chemistry changes. So you can be bipolar, you can get depression, uh, anxiety, uh, you can have insomnia suddenly. And if you're not sleeping, you're not thinking straight. So there's so many other factors and we need to recognize even those tiny things, get some help, get to someone who, first of all, a medical doctor who you can get referred to the proper kind of therapist, um, not just medicine, because I don't think medicine alone helps. From what I see on the bench, it leads to um, addiction, it leads to other bad behaviors. And so you need a combination of perhaps medicine and uh, treatment, emotional support from a therapist who's your secret keeper. You know what you need to figure out is what, what you're experiencing. Is it chemical or is it situational? I'm thinking with your uncle from the, what you're describing, because he had connections, maybe for him, it was more he had like a true clinical, he was in a depression biochemically speaking. So one yes. of the things that I want to say to people is there's different ways that mental health issues show up. And like you're saying, when you become a teenager, that's usually when, if you're predisposed to having depression, if you're having anxiety, OCD, usually around the age 18, between 18 and 20, especially with bipolar disorder, that's when it comes out. And there's different things that can trigger that, but some of it's just your age. But I think it's important for people to understand there are people who are truly in a clinical depression and need medical intervention, like medication, like psychiatric counseling, different, different alternative treatments. There's some new, newer forms of treatments that are coming out that will help people with their brain chemistry, not something a therapist can offer. And then there's people like my client that I'm talking about, who's having a really hard time because she's got learning issues. She's got issues with her peers. She hates her body. And to me, this is somebody who isn't necessarily predisposed to having depression, but is having a really hard time. And being away at college and now being, you know, this is the end of the year for many kids, you live in a situation for six, seven months away from home where you feel 
alienated, where you feel ostracized, that those are things that can lead to clinical depression and suicidal tendencies. So tell us the difference before we go any further, because I think I can guess it just from what I know, but you're the expert. Tell us the difference between chemical and situational depression. Yes, I am making fun of her right now. You can't see me, but because she always calls me the expert and I think you're actually an expert too. You just don't do it for a living. So, okay. So you want to know the difference between chemical. So chemical depression is something where on with somebody's chemistry, their serotonin levels, their, just the way their body is, is working what happens is I'm thinking of one person in particular, I've been working with this guy and he's now in his early seventies, but his depression came out when he was around 17. He grew up with a mom that was bipolar and starting at around the age of 17 and 18, he would go through what he would call these depressive episodes. He would wake up in the morning and he would not want to get out of bed. He would not want to eat. He did not want to talk to people. And for him, there was no trigger because that was one of the questions I asked him when I met him, were there things going on in your life that made you feel that way, that caused you? What we realized, and again, this took us a little bit of time because I have to get to know people and understand their background. His mom was, she had bipolar disorder, not like bipolar tendencies, but full-blown bipolar disorder. So what we, we realized and what he had to come to accept was, he had some of his mom's genes. So for someone like him, he wasn't needing to see necessarily a trauma therapist, even though he had some trauma in his history. He went for ECT treatment. He went to a residential facility at one what's point. E- what's ECT, ECT treatment? Electric convulsive therapy. It's a very old form and it's something that they- shock therapy? Yeah. That sounds horrible. Like what we used to see in the movies. I take it they've made it better. I have to say, I have to say, um, good for you for saying that because I think that's what people think on the outside. I myself thought that, but when I was not even out of my graduate program, I worked at a psychiatric hospital and I actually was a tech, which was somebody that basically assisted patients between sessions. So I was in the room when people had ECT. I, I wasn't sure at that time what it did for people because I only was there for the procedure, but this client that I'm telling you about now had ECT while he was seeing me. The changes in him were remarkable. It was almost like he came alive. He, he went from, when he first came into my office, I have to tell you, he didn't even walk, he shuffled. His feet didn't even lift off the ground. He didn't look at me. His affect was very like flat. Was he suicidal? I would say he wasn't actively suicidal, but he lived the life of somebody who was practically dead. After going through, and I'm trying to think how many times he went, I think he did 30 ECT sessions and it was over the course of weeks. So he did it twice a week for like 10 weeks, about two or three months after his last shock therapy, he started laughing. He started telling me how my wife is pissing me off. I said, wait, you, you feel pissed off now. He was telling jokes. 
So I think, again, is it for everybody? No. Would I recommend it for this college student that I'm working with? No. But there are certain people with chemical depression where you can give them all the Prozac and all the therapy that you want. It's not enough. So with your uncle, and again, I don't know because I never got to talk to him. I feel like he's somebody who had more of a clinical chemical depression, mood disorder. That's what it feels like. Sounds to me like that might've helped him. He did take some medicine. He did all sorts of things, but you know, here's the problem when you get depressed people and then doctors dole out medicine, they end up taking the bottle and it's game over. Or then they're uh, taken to the hospital because someone sees, oh my, oh my, you know, this is what's happened and their stomach's pumped or what have you. And then they're hospitalized for so many days and then the cycle starts over again. So there has to be a lot more intervention. My uncle, you know, he just didn't want to be here anymore. And I will never understand the reason. I know something happened. I do not know what exactly. Um, but it has me think about all of the people that you're talking about that I see uh, in front of me on the bench, people I know. And actually, as a parent, I have to say, I'll admit to this, um, I've given my kids diaries and notebooks. And of course, I'm a writer, so I'm always writing things down. But I think writing is one of those things that when you're upset, anybody can write. And so even if you say that sounds like homework, people write things down, especially I think if they're depressed and they're trying to sort out their thoughts. So I will admit that I have broken into my kids' diaries. I have read about things that they couldn't tell anybody. And so as a parent, I don't think you should feel guilty about doing that. I think sometimes it's necessary because people who tend to be depressed, I think, and you're, again, you're the expert, Sherry, I'm going to keep calling you that. Um, you, You can talk about it, but People write poems, they write songs, they write um, uh, little notations, they talk about death, they sort of live in, okay, if I wasn't here, I'd rather not be here because things will be great in heaven or whatever it is that they're writing about. Even if it's just a, a teacher or friend bullying them or some wish that they wish that they can't tell you, like, I don't like these pimples and I want to go see the doctor, but I'm afraid my mom will yell at me if I ask about my skin because she keeps telling me I'm a teenager and it'll clear up. Well, sometimes you do need to go to the dermatologist or the therapist or whatever. And so I think looking at some of those notes that the kids have written and leaving it there, not letting them know that, you know, and just addressing it sort of magically might save their life. It might save, save them a lot of grief because there are things that we have to do um, to do an end run around what's going on when they're not willing to say, yeah, I don't want to be here anymore. And I'm not going to be here. I mean, to be honest, I can understand why you would want to look in your kids journals. And I can't, I, I haven't been in that experience with my little guy. And I know that anything's possible, but what I'm thinking as somebody who was suicidal for a lot of my life, when I was growing up is it was in, how do you say this? It was when I wrote things. I used to write a lot things like, this world would be so much better off without me. I don't wanna be here anymore. I wished I were dead. And while, and I can still remember what I felt when I wrote that stuff, it was in writing it down that I did not choose to act on it. It actually helped me to just be able to tell myself, while those are horrible things to feel, And that's the other thing. People are afraid. They're afraid. Like, 
I don't know about your kids, but I, I think a lot of kids are actually afraid. If I tell my parents, this one college kid that I'm telling you about today, if I tell my parents that I think of suicide or sometimes I have these wishes of just being dead, they're going to make me come home from college. They're going to put me in some quote unquote crazy place. and or I'm, or I'm going to disappoint them. Right, right. And the thing is, and this is something else I really want to make sure that I say, there's a difference between being suicidal and having suicidal tendencies. Your uncle was suicidal. He decided on his own that he didn't want, he did not want to be here anymore. And when he got to the point where he really felt that way, he wasn't able to speak it. He didn't write it. He acted on it. Most of the time, people with depression, they, they do dabble with, with wanting to do, do themselves in, not necessarily because they don't want to be alive, but because they can't stand the pain they're feeling anymore. It's too much to feel and it's scary. So we need as a society to be more open to hearing what people are thinking and feeling. And I think it's a great idea, especially with kids your age, to have kids who are in their early teens, because that's when the feelings really start to come up. As soon as they get into middle school and they start going through puberty and their bodies are going crazy with all the chemical changes, some of them are on different types of medications for a variety of issues. They need to be able to have outlets and they need to be able to speak and not feel like if they speak that something horrible is going to happen to them or somebody around them. And don't diminish if your kid is saying, you know, I wish I were dead or I'm just going to kill myself, that it's a joke. You need to say, okay, we're going to go to the hospital today. You need to really take it seriously. And if they say, I was just kidding, have a chat with them about what exactly that means, because kids don't say, I'm going to kill myself just for attention. Uh, I mean, and sometimes people I've said things like, geez, if that happens, you know, and, and things that probably I shouldn't say, um, and we all jest about certain things and right, probably right. shouldn't, but you have to look at the context and kids shouldn't be saying that they should want to excel, not think about being in a coffin. So take it seriously. It's not an attention seeking statement. It's a cry for help. And so as a parent, we need to take every single comment like that seriously and get it addressed in a timely fashion, like when it's happening, not two weeks from now after you've thought about it. You don't want to wait. And for those parents who have kids on college campuses or who no longer live with their kids, there are more and more resources out there, especially with COVID and the, and the teletherapy. There's ways for our young teenagers or young kids to get those. They're not kids, actually. College kids hate when I call them kids, but there's there are more and more supports out there on college campuses. And if you go to a college where you feel like there isn't adequate support, well, then maybe you can start something at your college. Maybe you can be the spokesperson for the hundreds of other students at your college who you know also probably need more than what the school is offering. There's yeah. always ways to improve the system. There's ways to open up communication and have more support that's accessible for people. I think it's also important to recognize that open conversations and information is important so that get rid of the idea in your head that if I talk about suicide, I'm planting that suicide 
ideation in someone's head. What you need to do is to say, you know, things like, I've noticed that you've been talking a lot about death or about not wanting to be here, whatever it is that you're hearing that your, your antenna's up and you think that's not quite right. And you can just say, have you been having thoughts of not being here committing suicide? And then address it because the open conversation will help. And they'll also feel like, hey, I matter. They've noticed this and they're willing to help. And, you know, don't yell at them. It has to be those open-ended questions and then get them the right help. It is, I think, and again, Sherry, I rely on you, but I think it is a misconception that if you talk about it, you're putting ideas in someone's head. Yeah, that that statement drives me bananas as a therapist because it's it, it's like the total opposite. It's in not talking about things that we lose our minds or that we our minds allow us to go to deeper, darker places. It's the worst thing that you can do is keep things inside. If you're talking to a therapist or you're talking to somebody and they're trying to explore with you what these like why why are you talking about death more? You seem you seem to be more in this place of despair. If, if we're asking somebody that that's not us trying to make somebody feel something, you can't make somebody feel something. There's it's, that's impossible. You can't put thoughts in somebody else's head. We don't have that kind of power. Right. And there should always be somebody else, whether it's your friend or um, your parent or whoever it is who is having the, this suicidal I don't know, ideation or issue or mental breakdown, depression, whatever it is that's going on, if they can't talk to you because you're too close to them for, or for whatever reason, take them or suggest that they talk to some neutral person. And it could be a priest, uh, whatever clergy you belong to. Um, it could be a coach. If there's one that they trust a school counselor, it could be a doctor, a neighbor, a different girlfriend, uh, someone I, I can tell you as a judge, people who don't appear in front of me will say, can you talk to my teenager? Can you talk to my child? And I have on occasion actually said to the parent, look, I can tell instantly that your child is suffering, does not want you to see that they're suffering. And the suffering is because their brother died or their sister died or their aunt died. And they don't, they know that you're grieving and they can't tell you. So I'm going to tell you that you need family counseling. You need grief counseling before this gets any worse, because they're not only grieving for the person they love, but they're grieving for you and your loss and it's affecting them. So sometimes it's having some neutral person. And I, you know, I always do the caveat. I am not a therapist. I'm just a mom. <laughs> and I try to use my, my common sense and my life experience to help others. So if you know somebody like that, then ask them for their help. I never mind talking to somebody. I think it's great to be able as a parent to be able to be available to talk to somebody else's kid because I do think sometimes there are, you know, our kids don't want to come to us because they, they're protective of us. They worry about us. And I have some friends with young teenagers right now, and I know some of them are struggling a lot. And I try to convey messages of hope and let them know that, and this is really important. When you feel really hopeless, it will pass. It's like any other emotion. I've got this one mom who I think is fantastic. Her daughter is definitely more clinically, chemically depressed. She's got some learning issues, um, but she's predisposed. I, the family history just goes back to generations. What 
my client does when her kid is feeling suicidal is her kid will text her and say, mom, I need you to come upstairs and sit with me. My client goes up there and my client was suicidal a lot at, 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 at those ages too. She doesn't judge her. She doesn't yell at her. She literally just sits next to her and she, she sits with her. She doesn't tell her, try to fix it. And what ends up happening is that feeling of safety and connection helps her daughter. It helps her daughter. And she knows that her daughter knows now because she's been working with a therapist on how to manage all this. If she tells her mom, I need you to sit with me. She knows she's not going to feel that way forever. She's probably one of the most suicidal teenagers I've ever heard about. And do you know, she's never done anything to hurt herself. I believe yeah, terrific. I think it's because it's not just because she has a mom that's kick-ass awesome. I think it's because she's learned how to understand that the feeling will pass and she's figured out what to do when it comes up. She's got a plan. Yeah. And if you can't be a parent, who's always there 24 seven, because mm -hmm. not all parents can, there should be somebody else they can turn to, but also consider a therapy animal. It doesn't have to be a $10,000 therapy animal, an animal just to sit and hug and love them because a cat will sit with you forever. You just pet them and they will purr and, you know, dogs too. That's what they, they like that human connection, but to a person who's suicidal, that can be the difference between life or death. And of course, it's another reason for them to say, I want to live, because who's going to take care of the dog? Who's going to take care of the cat? And that unconditional love that animals give is priceless. And we really need to make sure that anybody who is suicidal uh, has a connection to someone or some animal who is important enough to sit with them, who will keep them safe through that really rough time where there's, where they're saying, I don't want to be here. More and more college students are actually fostering animals. More dorms are now allowing kids to actually have pets. That would have never, that would not have flown in my decade of college. But now I think again, because we're talking more about mental health and mental health awareness, it's, it is, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And you don't need a quote unquote pet therapy, or you don't need a therapy dog. You just need a dog. I just posted the other day. I saw this picture of this little cat that looked like my Gigi. And I wrote on the post who else out there feels like it's their dog or cat that kept them sane because it I, does, it keeps you, like you said, it keeps you grounded and it keeps you moving forward. And even just the tactile feeling of having the warm, fuzzy, barking or purring, whatever you have, um, pet next to you, it really can make a big difference. And for those of you who say, Oh, not my kid, not my spouse, not my friend. Think about the emotional and physical struggles they have, the perhaps sexual assault they've endured or other kinds of abuse they've endured, or maybe simply getting bad grades because they're having a problem doing math or reading, they're dyslexic or what have you. And so they're struggling and they're seeing all their friends go ahead of them and they feel like they're stupid. These are all warning signs that in the back of their mind somewhere, they might say, I'm, I can't do math. I can't keep up. I'm not worthy of living because I don't want to be left behind in class. I'm not worthy because I let somebody abuse me when in fact it's the abuser's fault. It is never the victim's fault. 
And we have to untangle all of that and make them feel that they are worthy and that this is not their fault. And there is help out there for whatever they're struggling with and help them find that help, whatever it is, knock on as many doors as you need to, to get them help. Because somebody who is struggling with suicide, whether it's suicide because of mental illness, depression, what have you, or suicidal ideation or whatever, whatever the cause of it, the struggle's real. And And it's the worst feeling ever. If I could explain what it feels like, and I can't explain it for everybody. I know what it felt like for me and I know it's different for everybody, but it is the worst feeling to feel like you're trapped in a life that you don't want to live. And it's so important to know that there are things like you're saying, there's things that we can do about that. And even if you don't fully understand someone else's experience, if you can just affirm the importance of who they are, and like you're saying, their worth, sometimes that's all people need. They just need to know that somebody out there, I can guarantee you that this woman that reached out to you, and I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if you reached back out to her or what happened, but I can pretty much guarantee you that that for her was probably in that moment, what helped her to keep moving forward, to be able to make a connection and speak up and tell somebody what was going on with her. Even if you're not the person that can assist her, it's, 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 it's sure she's reminding herself. There's people out there that I think are going to listen to what I have to say. And that's so important. Well, and suicide often happens after a stressful life event, the loss of someone, uh, bad grades, a breakup, uh, the death of, of a, a parent, a loved one, a friend. There's a lot of, you know, we're talking about teenagers. There's a lot of them dying because of overdoses. It's and mm-hmm. it's awful. And then that loss affects the friend group in such different ways. Some go on to use hard, harder drugs or different drugs. Some commit suicide, some run away, some uh, prostitute themselves. I mean, there's all sorts of these outcomes because they don't know how to deal with it. So the trauma creates more trauma and more disconnection. And we need to intervene early. The second something happens, no matter what the loss or the trauma is, you need to go and figure out who you can talk to. And especially for these younger folks, it's, you know, you look at them and you think, oh, they're so mature. They seem so grown up, but they're not grown up. They're still kids. They haven't fully developed. They don't understand what to make of their friend dying from an overdose. They don't understand why their friend died from cancer or why their friend died in that car accident. They can't make sense of all that. We, we can't make sense of that as adults, but we can learn. We have a, we have the capacity to make some sense of it to the point where we can figure something out about it. Well, uh, and don't shame them. I've heard no. people say, well, you're too young to feel that way, or you're too no. young to know that, or you're too, it, don't do that. Just deal with it. Mm. Because if they're talking about it, if they're acting out, they are feeling it. They're not too young for it or too smart no. for it or any of those statements get them help. That is the bottom line. Listen, get them help and stay neutral because you can't shame or blame, but let them know that you are in their corner and you are there for anything they need. And I'm hoping today, because I know we're going to need to wrap up, but I'm hoping that people, as they're listening to this conversation, that they're nodding along and that they're understanding 
oh, there are things we can do. Oh, it's not just me. Oh, I didn't even think about that as a warning sign for depression. And mental health awareness is so, so important more now than ever. So I wanted to actually share this. So I'm a huge Peloton, Peloton. I don't know what you call people like us, but I love that bike to pieces. And one of the instructors, her name is Kendall O'Toole, who I'm shouting out to you. If you end up listening to this, to the podcast, she has talked openly about struggling with depression and suicidal tendencies. So I wanted to read this. She posted this the other day, and I wanted to read this. With Mental Health Awareness Month less than a week away, I wanted to resurface this clip from one of my mental health awareness rides. The world is struggling. In fact, you might be struggling right now. That's okay. Honestly, I have been there too. So numb, so detached and lost and self-isolated that contemplating and almost completing one of the heaviest decisions brought me to my low. But there is hope. Oh my God, is there hope? There is so much more beyond that moment, that feeling or lack thereof, that day in the life. There's more love, more joy, more evolution, more laughter, more experience, more heartbreak, more frustrations, more fine days, and more tough ones. And it's all worth it. Totally agree. So if you've got someone out there, that was beautiful. Thank you for reading it. Um, if you've got someone out there that you're concerned about, or maybe you ought to be concerned about, you don't know it yet, uh, watch, listen, ask questions, offer support, get them help. Don't blame them in any way. Tell them that you know they're going to get through this and make sure that you've reinforced that. And make sure that you attend meetings with them, whether it's therapist meeting or an AA meeting or whatever they're going through offer rides, don't judge and be there because there is nothing in this world that can't be solved when there is a support system. It's that old saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to keep a life on this planet. I was just going to say that. What a, what a great place to stop. And never feel like your village is too big. There's no such thing as having too big of a village. And for those of you where you know someone else's village is too small, jump in, join them and enlarge it. Until next time. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Warrior Women Speak. It truly is an honor to be able to sit down with Judge Aquilina and have such meaningful conversations. Stay tuned. Each Monday, we will be releasing new episodes in the hopes that we will inspire, uplift, and instill hope. Be sure to subscribe now to at Warrior Women Speak. Until next time.